Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Good morning, evening, afternoon, folks, whatever time you're listening to this podcast. I am your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, episode 91 of the Cyber Guy podcast, we're going to talk some news items and I'm going to do um, a postmortem on a business email compromise event um, I have some knowledge of. Uh, a lot of stuff is going to be removed to protect the, the victims and stuff like that. But I want to talk about the generalizations of what we saw in this particular business email compromise because I think it's a good learning experience for those who've not experienced a business email compromise and talk about some ways to protect yourselves and what to do in the event you are a victim. And one of the things I complain about a lot, if you were watching me on LinkedIn, is that there is there was created in an executive order by the president two years ago what was supposed to be called the Cyber, Cyber Safety Review Board, which anytime there was some major cyber event, there would be like an NTSB group that would go out and look at the case and figure out, okay, here's what happened. Here's what we learned from it and let everybody know um, intelligence from that, from that particular event. The only one I think they've even done anything remotely close to is SolarWinds and that had limited, a limited reporting scheme. There've been plenty of other uh, intrusions and bad things that have happened over the course of the last two years that could have resulted in this review board doing something, but they have not really. So it's kind of been a lot of talk for really no show. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and give you all, you listeners of this podcast, a postmortem on what it looks like when a company is victimized by business email compromise, how the actor kind of did it, what he did when he was in there, and things you can look for to prevent yourself from becoming the victim of the number one financial cybercrime um, That's a bad wording. The number one um, method that cyber actors are using to gain money in the cybercrime world, um, and that is through business email compromise. It is 25 times more profitable than ransomware, and for the last eight years, it's been the number one cybercrime in in terms of financial loss uh, of all those that are that are measured by the Internet Crime Complaint Center. But before we get to that, uh, a couple other things. Um, if you are a frequent listener to the podcast, I appreciate it. Those who, who hit the subscribe button, uh, and get the podcast downloaded when it comes up, I'm trying to be more regular, but it's just, I got, I've got a lot of things going on. So trying to, to, to do this regularly and find guests is becoming more, um, not say problematic, but it's, it's difficult to kind of weave all those things in. So I appreciate those who've stuck around and continue on uh, with me as I go forward for this one and the Get Cyber Smart podcast. Uh, I just finished up a, a series there on protecting the elderly online or protecting seniors. So I'm coming up with another, you know, four or five episode uh, lesson, if you will, uh, for that podcast. And, and hopefully I'll have something for that later this week or early next week. But um, I appreciate those who listen, who spread the word, who provide uh, comments and commentary on the different platforms from which you download the podcast. So again, thank you so much for that. Like I said, no, there will be no guests for this episode. It's going to kind of be talking. Um, so hopefully you're good with that. If not, you know where to contact me, Darren at the cyberguy.com. Feel free to email me. I appreciate emails that come in. I try to respond to all of them 
Not that there's a whole lot ever, but for those that do take the time to email, I will, of course, email you back. So let's uh, take a look at some news. So the first two, actually, I'm going to hold off on the first two news articles because they kind of tie into each other. And let me go to this one. Um, and, and and this is basically, you know, like, you, like, like you, you've come to appreciate probably, this first part of the podcast is usually looking at cyber crimes of the past week. And if I was to do all of the cyber crimes that occurred over the course of the last week, we'd be here for several hours going over them all because it seems like every day there are several, several that are identified. So I'm trying to highlight some ones that are interesting um, and that you should be aware of. The first one, um, this article is from cybernews.com. And I'll be honest, I get a lot of my stuff from cybernews. They do a really nice job of looking at cybersecurity matters here. So I, I recommend you go to them. But this is by uh, Vilius Petkowskis, a senior journalist. This is from today, February 20th, 2023. GoDaddy hackers stole source code and customer details. Now, that's not good because if you are any kind of website owner or domain owner, you probably use GoDaddy uh, to get your uh, information. So you may have been a victim, but GoDaddy, so this is from the article, GoDaddy, a web hosting behemoth, said the company suffered from a, get this, multi-year breach with attackers installing malware on its servers. Unknown attackers accessed GoDaddy servers via cPanel shared hosting environment and installed malware in an attack spanning several years. This is, and this really kind of highlights how good these actors can be. That, you know, GoDaddy, based on what it does as a business model, you would like to think has reasonable cybersecurity protocols in place to look for this kind of thing. Yet this particular data breach, which was discovered on December 22, when they did an investigation that came to find out the actor had been in their system since 2020, two years. The actor was in the GoDaddy system, gathering intelligence, pivoting to other parts of the network, stealing customer information. Um, and it just goes to show. So this would be, for me, I would guess this is a nation state actor, which would make sense, but um, that's just me guessing on that. Because again, there's no cyber cyber safety review board going out and looking at these things and giving us a report so we can know what happened. But that's uh, a side conversation. So from the article again, based on our investigation, quote, uh, we believe these incidents are part of a multi-year campaign by a sophisticated threat actor group that among other things, installed malware on our systems and obtained pieces of code related to some services within GoDaddy. The company said in a filing to the SEC. GoDaddy claims the same attackers carried out the 2021 breach when email addresses of up to 1.2 million managed WordPress customers of the company had been accessed by an unauthorized third party. So scrolling through a couple more of this, the most badly affected country uh, in this attack was the U.S., which had 201 websites compromised, followed by France with 62, Germany 51, and the U.K. 34. Um, and that's kind of the, the gist of that. So basically GoDaddy got hacked and customer information, all sorts of other stuff was taken. And, uh, particularly if you're a WordPress customer, um, you have some additional issues there. So if you use GoDaddy for your domain service and you're using WordPress, um, change your passwords, uh, make sure you enable multi-factor authentication, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so again, it just goes to show that it doesn't matter how, you know, how, how, cyber conscious you are as a company, which GoDaddy, I think, would be reasonably cyber conscious, cybersecurity conscious, you can still get hit with bad actors getting in your system. Now, how, now, the one thing I'd love to know 
which I don't know from this article and probably GoDaddy's never going to say, is how did they get in? My guess, it was some kind of spearfish email that someone did something and they responded to, a, to an email and they gave in their legitimate login credentials. There was a multi-factor authentication set up and the bad actors got in. I have a GoDaddy account and I do have multi-factor authentication set up, um, but you have to request it. It doesn't set up by default. So you have to request that kind of thing. So speaking of... of um, um, multi-factor authentication issues. Let's talk about these next two articles. This, this one is from Threat Post, and it says the tentacles of octopus threat group victimize 130 firms. And this particular article I'm highlighting, and actually this one is this is an older article, but I'm simply highlighting it because it's interesting to look at. This is an older older intrusion, but the the depth and breadth of the intrusion across multiple customers. Um, and the way that they did what they did, they were essentially able to bypass multi-factor authentication in, in this particular text. Let's talk about this a little bit. So over 130 companies were tangled in sprawling phishing campaign that spoofed a multi-factor authentication system. And I'm highlighting this article again, it's a little older, but because the actor targeted MFA systems. So target attacks on Twilo and Cloudflare employees uh, who were tied to a massive phishing campaign that resulted in 9,931 accounts at over 130 organizations being compromised. The campaigns are tied to focused abuse of identity and access management by Okta, which gained the threat actors the octopus moniker. So the primary goal of the threat actors was to obtain Okta identity credentials and MFA codes from users of targeted organizations. These users received text messages containing links to phishing sites that mimicked the Okta authentication page of their organization. And so what ultimately happened is individuals saw, got these what looked like legitimate emails, went to the link in it, that's the first mistake, and then they entered their information into the site they went to, including their MFA information. So, um... The octopus attackers are believed to have begun their campaign by targeting telecommunication companies in hopes of winning access to potential targets' phone numbers. The reason for this is they can spoof the phone numbers, and therefore, when uh, a user requests or, or requests the uh, SMS text for their MFA authentication, the bad actor gets it as well and can then access the user's account because they've already, through the spear phishing email, got login and password information. They now know the phone number of the intended victim can spoof that number or clone it so that when they request uh, the SMS text code, then it goes to the bad guy who then gets access to the account. And this worked for them. They got access to 9,931 legitimate accounts. Now, the reason I'm highlighting this is we are starting to see now that SMS multi-factor authentication has got obvious vulnerabilities. This one highlights some of those particular vulnerabilities. SMS text and email text is not the only way you can do multi-factor authentication. You can also use authenticator apps on your phone, which add an additional layer of security because you have access to that app only. Uh, and therefore that code you hold, you have it with you. Now there's other ways other than using authenticator apps on your phone. You can also get tokens, RSA tokens, little thing, little devices that you hang on your lanyard at work that cycle um, six digit codes around every 30 seconds. Again, that one is, you can't really spoof that because you have to actually, you register the token with your email account through RSA. 
and then it's it's largely protected. Um, this uh, the um, another way to do this uh, is recommended in this particular article. If I can find where I saw that exactly is. Anyway, it has to do with having hard tokens. So there's there's a lot of different ways to use multi-factor authentication beyond SMS coding, or except SMS texting. Um, and, and actually, so here's the here's the line in the article it says to mitigate octopus-style campaigns, the researchers recommended good hygiene around URL and passwords, obviously, which means when you, when you're clicking on a link, make sure the link is correct because it's very easy for bad actors to mimic a URL that you think you're going to by changing one letter or number, one letter or digit in that URL. So for example, if your URL has the letter L in it and you replace it with a one, are you going to recognize that to be the wrong URL? Probably you're not looking that closely and you're going to get scammed by it, which we'll find out when I do my BEC postmortem here in a second. But anyway, so, you know, use FIDO2 compliant security keys for MFA. These are going to be um, hard-coded, uh, hard-coded act tokens that you have in your possession that when you lose, if you lose them, you can very easily deactivate them. And, and again, it protects you still use multi-factor authentication, but it's something that you have in your possession. It's not a text message that if your phone is spoofed or cloned, then the bad actor would get that MFA token as well. So again, you know, MFA, we tout, I tout it all the time. It's still important to have, just understand that nothing is a 100% protection model for bad actors getting into your systems. Which brings me to the article of today, which is interesting, if not somewhat disturbing. And it's not surprising it's disturbing. It comes from Twitter. Um, so this, again, is another cyber news article. This is, actually, this is Reuters. Excuse me. Um, and it's basically, Twitter is going to start charging for multi-factor authentication, if you can believe that. So Twitter said on Friday, it will allow only paid subscribers to use text messages as two-factor authentication method to secure their account. Now, what they're saying is that uh, SMS text cost is their scams result, that are resulting in them somehow losing $60 million per year on SMS scams through multi-factor authentication. I'd love to see the report on that what that looks like but um, basically what twitter is saying is the company believes phone number based multi-factor authentication is being abused by bad actors according to a wednesday blog post that the company's tweet linked to twitter owner elon musk tweeted yep in reply to a user tweet that the company was changing policy because telco is using bot accounts to pump 2fa sms and the company was losing 16 minutes again i how that how's that happening i'd love to know if anybody knows email it to me i'm I, sure i could probably look it up if i was so inclined to, to find out but well you know let's 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 do that here while we're talking i will i'm going to quickly type in and see if i can find how they're losing 60 million dollars and then we'll come back and talk about it Okay, so I found another article that says, um, so this is Elon Musk stating in a December 20th discussion held on Twitter spaces that 10 days ago, Twitter was being, uh, I discovered that Twitter was being scammed to the tune of $60 million a year for SMS text, not accounting North America. Basically, there are telcos who are not being super honest out there in other parts of the world who are basically gaming the system and running like two-factor authentication SMS text over and over again and, and creating a zillion bot accounts to literally run up the tab so that Twitter would SMS text them and Twitter would 
pay them millions of dollars without even asking about it. So I assume that in other countries that use SMS texting, they charge Twitter for each SMS text that they sent out, and that would make sense. So I understand kind of what he is saying there, that there is fraud involved in that. Now, um, he also said that turned out to be a lot, 390 telcos. I don't know where they were, how many telcos in existence, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so basically he's saying, so that's what he's saying. That's why he's going to start charging people. Now, again, hopefully Twitter will have an option, an alternate option for this, that you can use a, um, authenticator app to use your, to get multi-factor authentication. I want to think that that's what I'm using. If I double check real quick, my authenticator app, see if Twitter is one of them, it is. And then there you go. Then that you have an option to do that. Uh, Twitter is one is one. So, okay. So look, you don't have to use SMS texting for Twitter MFA. So it's the most convenient. Obviously I understand that using SMS texting is easy because easy to set up, but it's not that hard to get. I use Google, Google's authenticator. It's free. You go on to the SMS secure additional security on Twitter, and you can set up an authenticator app and it's not costing them anything and they're not going to charge you for it. So it's just, so if you hear anybody saying that, that Twitter is charging for multi-factor authentication. They're charging for SMS multi-factor authentication, not multi-factor authentication in general. Still, it's, and I, and I guess I can understand what he's saying there. But again, it goes to show that there are limitations and issues surrounding all technology. Bad guys are going to figure out how to take technology and do bad things with it. And as a result, we are all victimized. So in this case, if you liked SMS text multi-factor authentication for your Twitter, you're getting hosed. It is only a matter of time before other companies follow suit. So look for that. I'm predicting that now that other, other companies are going to follow suit and do the same thing coming up. All right. So again, use an authenticator app. Life will be much easier. All right. So as I promised, I got a couple, about 10 minutes left here. I want to talk about um, a postmortem on a business email compromise. Now, what I'm going to talk about here is just generalizations of this particular attack that I, a friend of mine talked to me about. And I'm, I'm sharing this simply because I think it's important for people to understand how easy it is for bad guys to get into systems and get lots of money um, from companies because people are inundated with email all the time. Technology is hard. Companies don't do what they're supposed to do to protect their systems in general. Um, and you know, if you're moving a lot of money every day, you can get overwhelmed, especially if you're overworked and bad things can happen. So essentially in this case, a company lost about a half a million dollars to an email business email compromise, meaning that somebody redirected money from a legitimate vendor to a bank account that was not the vendor's bank account. And several weeks after it happened, the company learned that they did not send the money to the right person because the right company called and said, where's our invoice payment? And they said, we sent it on this date. And it turns out they did not. So let's talk a little bit about how this particular thing happened. So the focus of the investigation we're talking about was on the procurement officer for a particular company. A lot of stuff is going to be redacted here. So you're not going to be able to tie this to anything like I say any company names. I'm just going to give the generalizations of what the bad guys did and how they did it because this is how it happens all the time. But you don't hear a lot of you know, you don't see a lot of postmortems on these things. So essentially the, 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 the forensic or incident response investigation looked at the procurement officer for this particular company because they had been, they, their account was used to initiate the fraudulent wire transfer. 
So this particular company uh, uses, as most companies now do, use some version of Microsoft Office 365. The problem was they didn't have multi-factor authentication set up. Hey, we were just talking about that. Shocking. We were talking about it again. So all this procurement officer had to do to log into their their email, their company email, was have a username and password. But this particular officer pretty much only used the Office 365, the Outlook 360, Office 365 version that was on their computer, either their laptop or their desk. I'm not exactly sure which version they had, but it was a desktop version, you know, desktop. Again, it could be a desktop or laptop, but it was the Outlook there. They didn't access Outlook on the web because they just didn't really, they weren't technically savvy, didn't know how to. But once it turned out the company realized they had lost $500,000, they went and looked into this procurement officer's logins and identified several, again, in, in doing a review of the logs, which they hadn't done um, for a while until because they didn't, because they didn't have a need to, but they looked at the audit logs and it revealed several successful logins to the email account via the Outlook web app, meaning the someone went to, Microsoft calls it OWA, and it's basically just Office 365 Outlook on the web. And there were geographically suspicious locations and IP addresses that spanned roughly six months. So someone was logging into the procurement officer's account over the course of a six-month period from IP addresses from which the officer was not at. I mean, the officer had not been in Russia, had not been in Ukraine, had not been in other states. So this this login information was kind of jumping around. So it was determined that um, the one of the IPs had a successful login several months prior. And, and looking at the procurement officer's email account, they found a suspicious email that redirected the officer to what looked like an Office 365 login page. They didn't think anything of it, thought it was part of normal business operations. And without, you know, asking anybody in IT, they just put in their login name and password. And again, they weren't using multi-factor authentication, put that information in. It got redirected to what looked like a legitimate Microsoft web page saying, hey, you successfully logged in. Congratulations. You can now close your web browser, whatever it said. I, I didn't see that part, but I, I would have guessed that's what it did. And upon doing that, the actor, the bad actor now had access to this procurement officer's legitimate email login information and was able to go to the Outlook web application and log in to that email as this user. So once in there, had complete access to the entire email system that the procurement officer had. And the way that all of this stuff is set up, unless someone actually took the time to look at these audit logs prior to the act, any of the activity, they would have seen this, but again, if a lot of companies don't have people looking at Office 365 audit logs on a daily basis to make sure everybody's logging in from where they're supposed to, they just don't have that capability to do so. So I'm not blaming the company for this. I'm just saying this is a problem that probably every company has that doesn't have a fully dedicated cybersecurity staff to do these kind of things. All right. So once the actor got in, they started making a couple changes, subtle changes to the email account. They created a number of email inbox rules um, that had the effect of routing particular emails and responses away from the normal email folder, such as the inbox, into such folders as junk email or RSS subscriptions or deleted items. 
The rules also targeted email body content containing the terms such as invoice. So this allowed the actor to know, okay, I'm looking for particular emails that deal with invoices. The actor could then see what the invoices said and could identify vendors where they could get in the middle of a vendor to vendor transaction and ideally do what they did to result in the theft of $500,000. The other thing they, one of the other things they did, which was, I mean, give them credit, it was pretty smart, is once they move these emails to these other folders, the junk email folder or the RSF subscription folder or deleted items, they also marked them, had them marked as red. The rule said, move it here and mark it as red. Because if you, you know, on your Outlook, when you get a new email, regardless of the folder it goes into, if it's unread, there is a bold number that says you have one, two, three, four, five, whatever number. By marking them immediately as red, that number never pops up. So if it's not a folder, you would never generally go into. And in this case, the procurement officer really had no need to go into junk email or RSF subscriptions or read what was there. Didn't know that there was anything in there to start with. And therefore, the actor was able to continue unabated. So um, the intent um, was to mass communications uh, and so once they identified, okay, this particular vendor is asking for $500,000 for this invoice from the company, um, the actor then jumped in the middle of the conversation and created a fictitious domain for the vendor requesting the $500,000. And what he did was he took the domain that that vendor had, call it jonesfencing.com, um, that's a bad one. Let me not not use that one. Let me call it um, well, let's see, this jodensfencing.com and change the I in fencing to a one. So it's jonesfencing, jonesfencing.com, but the, the I in fencing is now a one. If you're not looking closely enough at the email, you won't recognize it to not be real, which the procurement officer did not recognize. So now this email is in the email chain with the vendor repeatedly asking questions about payment. So, um, and what the actor did was repeatedly send emails asking and making there seem to be an urgent pressure resolve thing to get this payment, payment made. And ultimately um, the company took the information and said, okay, we're going to pay this vendor. So they quit sending me emails. Um, and ultimately um, wire transferred $500,000 to a bank account a legitimate, you know, bank account to Regions Bank, um, uh, and they paid it. They paid the five hundred thousand dollars. Now, what happened is several weeks later, the, the, the legitimate company, let's call them Jones Fencing, it's not their name, but let's just call it that, since I use it as an example, called and said, "Hey, where's our five hundred thousand dollars that we requested in this particular invoice?" And the procurement officer said, we paid it on this date. And the company said, we never received it on that date. So then that's what kicked off this whole thing. Ooh, oh, we think we may have been scammed. And so hence begins the incident response. We find that all this information is now found. Um, and so the company has to then kind of scramble and say, okay, who else has, because it turned out there were other folders created with different vendor names indicating the actor was targeting other vendors for the same kind of scam. Uh, anyway, to, to get in the middle of, of legitimate invoicing to get more invoices sent, but it turned out to only be this one $500,000 one. Uh, but anyway, so I mean, a key, couple of key things to learn from this regular people in your procurement or your accounts payable, your, your, your finance department, have them frequently look or look at yourself at, Outlook rules. Are there any rules in there that are odd? If there are, 
guess what? You've got somebody in your system, unless that particular user created that rule. Chances are most people in the finance department of most companies are not creating Outlook rules um, specifically to redirect emails with the word invoice into folders that are then marked as red. So, I mean, there's certain rules you can look at. That, that's, if it was just, you know, move this, the rule is move anything with this word to this folder, maybe that's legitimate, but obviously you can, you can kind of look at that and say, that doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't make that and make that rule. And also look under like your RSSS feeds and see if there's any emails in your RSSS feeds folder. If there are, someone redirected them there, it probably wasn't you. That's something you need to kind of, kind of look for. So, um, and you know, obviously the procurement officer never used the Outlook web access. So our application. So, that was a key thing. So, you know, there's the, and again, the big one is, well, the big one here is no multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication had been enabled. The actor never would have got in. Now, one funny story to this, uh, upon learning this, the company decided they were going to institute multi-factor authentication. They did so, <clears throat> but uh, the email that was sent out saying, we are now starting multi-factor authentication. Click on this link to set it up. They hadn't removed the actor from the system. So the actor saw the email and set up the multi-factor authentication first. So they had to go in and uh, remove, basically kick him out of all the systems uh, and then reset the multi-factor authentication. And then what the actor did, because he'd been in the email long enough, he had emails to all the people in the company, started sending phishing emails, hoping someone else would click on something. So again, I say all this just to make you aware of how easy it is for bad actors to get into these systems and the things they do once they're in there. And it can be financially devastating to a company to lose, uh, you know, half a million, a million. I had a company call me once and say they had fraudulently sent out three wire transfers over the course of about two, about a month measuring $1.2 million. The amount of loss in 2021 from business email compromise across 19,000 victims, I believe that was reported to the internet crime complaint center was about $2.1 billion. So and that's reportedly lost. There's going to be plenty of loss that never goes reported. And one thing I will say, if you are the victim of business email compromise, if you go to ic3.gov, if you contact your local FBI and you go to ic3.gov and report as much information as you can about the wire transfer, where it went, what the account information was, internet protocol addresses from bad actors, as much detail as possible, the Internet Crime Complaint Center has what's called the business email chain or in, business email compromise kill chain, meaning they can get in them. They can get in and they can stop wire transfers while they're being processed. And if you can report it within 24 to 48 hours, you have like a 78% chance of success in getting your money back. There's a lot of machinations around. I'm not going to get into the details on it. You can go read about the business email kill business email compromise kill chain at ic3.gov if you're so inclined, but they have a success rate of getting money back, but you have to identify it early and report it early. This company probably not going to get their money back. It's too late, but uh, you never know. It's never, it's not, you know, you can always try because essentially as I understand how it happens, they'll go to the, um, the bank account where the money was wired to because chances are it's not just one victim going into having money sent to that account. It's multiple victims. And so basically it's a first come first serve. If you lost half a million dollars and there's a million dollars in that account, when the FBI freezes it, 
you will get your $500,000 back. Now, if you lost $500,000 and you make a report and there's $20 in it, you'll get $20 back. So it all depends on the time it is that the bank account is frozen, uh, how much is in there, all that kind of stuff. But again, more information available to you at ic3.gov. Feel free to go there. So there is a quick little business email compromise postmortem. Now look, Someone tell the Cyber Safety Review Board how easy it is to talk about these things without giving up any information of any company that this happened to. The only company name I used was a fraudulent company called Jones Fencing, to use as an example. Uh, there may be a Jones Fencing, but it had nothing to do with this case at all. Um, I'm just using that as the first thing that kind of came to my head because... Um, there is a company, I believe, in town here that's called Jones Valley Fencing, and I have a bad fence, and I need to get my fence redone. So that kind of made me think about it because I was looking out my window staring at my crappy fence. So that's why I came up with that name. But anyway, all that to be said, Cyber Safety Review Board, it's not hard to provide intelligence that can help other people look for these kind of events and, and secure their own system so they do not become victims. That is why the Cyber Guy podcast, the Get Cyber Smart podcast is around. How can I help you not become a victim? If you found this particular information interesting, let me know. I'm happy to, I will go and do a 15 half hour video call to companies that don't have CISOs, don't have security programs and talk about cybersecurity, talk about ways to, you know, help your companies become more secure. All you have to do is ask me. I do not charge for those particular um, consultations. So feel free to Take me up on that if you are so inclined or pass my information to those people who may be so inclined. As you go through the rest of your week, know that knowledge is protection. If we can understand the threats that are targeting us, we can assess our risk. Proceed wisely. Thanks again for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, feel free to email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com. Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N. Cyber is spelled C-Y-B-U-R. Check out my other podcast, the Get Cyber Smart podcast, both this and the Cyber Get Cyber Smart podcast available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Follow me on LinkedIn. If you're so inclined, I'm not that hard to find. Thanks again for listening. Have a good rest of your week.